and we are in Leviticus chapter 8. Let me read for us. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket containing bread made without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron and tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed a turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on the front of it, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And then he brought Aaron's sons forward and put tunics on them, tied sashes around them and fastened caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. He then presented the bull for the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the bull and took some of the blood with his finger. He put it on all the horns of the altar to purify the altar. He poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So he consecrated it to make atonement for it. Moses also took all the fat around the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, and both kidneys and their fat, and burned it on the altar. But the bull with its hide and its flesh and its intestines, he burned outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. He then presented the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head, Then Moses slaughtered the ram and splashed the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and burned the head, the pieces, and the fat with water. And then he washed the internal organs and the legs with water and burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on their lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he splashed blood against the sides of the altar. After that, he took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat around the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver, both kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. And from the basket of bread made without yeast, which was before the Lord, he took one thick loaf, one thick loaf of olive oil mixed in, and one thin loaf, and he put these on the fat portions on the right thigh. He put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons, and they waved them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar, on top of the burnt offering as an ordination offering, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Moses also took the breast, which was his share of the ordination ram, and waved it before the Lord as a wave offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Then Moses took some of the anointing oil, some of the blood from the altar, and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, Cook the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread from the basket of ordination offerings, as I was commanded. Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Then burn up the rest of the meat and the bread. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are complete, for your ordination will last seven days. What has been done today was commanded to you by the Lord to make atonement for you. You must stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days and do what the Lord requires. So you will not die, for that is what I have been commanded. So Aaron and his sons did everything the Lord commanded through Moses. Our second reading, we're going to jump forward to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, starting at verse 23. Now there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Good afternoon, family. Um, Thanks, Pete, for bringing that reading. I know it's a pretty lengthy one, uh, but there was a reason for the madness, uh, which hopefully will become clearer uh, as the sermon goes on. I pray it becomes clearer. Uh, speaking of praying, we should pray. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word with gladness. Help me to uh, preach the gospel boldly as I should. And we pray that you would transform us, uh, individuals and as a community, into the image of Jesus. Make us more like him. Make us a holy people, pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. So as Pete said, we are continuing our journey through Leviticus. uh, And today we're looking at Israel's priesthood. Uh, So if you do have a Bible handy, it'll... Uh, really help you to track along. We're going to work with chapters 8 to 10 and chapter 21, some up the back, and there's also some in the rows there as well. Uh, Last week, Pete preached on the offering system, uh, the the offerings that told the story of how God's people could have their sins purified and forgiven, how they could offer right worship to God, and then the sacrifice uh, which allowed Israel to enjoy fellowship with the God of the universe. And if the sacrifices outline the path to get to that destination, fellowship with the God of the universe, then the priests are like the guides who make sure that the road to that destination is carefully followed. After all, as uh, we've been saying for this series, God's holy presence is dangerous. If you misstep, it can be fatal. 
And so Israel needed priestly guides, perfect and consistent and good enough to usher them safely into the presence of the holy God of the universe. And we need that too. Last week, uh, Pete showed us some images from Chernobyl's Reactor 4. Should have one up there for you. Um, And for decades, this place has been inhospitable for humans, completely off limits. But in more recent years, uh, some very clever people have figured out that it's now safer for humans to be in the reactor. So you can go on a tour now and go in the reactor for five minutes and no longer, deep in the heart of radioactive territory. You're buddied up with a guide and given some respirators and a Geiger counter, and they they take you in. And these guides are there to make sure that the tourists stay on the safe roads, to not stray to the left or the right, making sure that they don't stay in any one place for too long. Uh, Too much exposure will be deadly, right? Uh, And for some tourists, they're probably oblivious to the dangers. They probably live their life by the motto of YOLO. Um, But these guides are there with a profound sense of respect and fear and awe for the dangers that are in that reactor. They know how serious an environment they're in. It's a bit like the holiness of God. But as I was preparing this week, I was thinking about our Australian culture, right? And I actually think that we lack a a healthy respect or reverence for for much at all, really. Um, Unlike our indigenous brothers and sisters, our broader culture has little sense of much that is sacred. I dare say that there's probably not too many places where your average Aussie wouldn't be afraid to barge in. Uh, you know, the MCG is called Sacred Ground, and yet we let eight-year-olds play Kick footy there at halftime. Um, there's a million and one deadly Australian creatures that are trying to kill you at every turn, and yet the average Aussie just kind of shrugs it off, like, oh, that's kind of just what Australia is like. It's kind of just whatever. And I know plenty of people who'd have no issues waltzing into Anthony Albanese's office to give him a piece of their mind and to tell them what they want him to do for them, right? And I think this Aussie brashness, it can work its way into the way we relate to God. We can treat God a bit like we might treat Anthony Albanese. Sure, he's got a high position, but I've got no issues waltzing into his presence uh, to give him a piece of my mind and to tell him what I want him to do for me. But the whole problem that Leviticus presents us with is this. God is holy and people are not. God's holiness is so dangerous that it consumes and destroys anything and everything impure in its presence. That's why Israel needs priests. That's why they needed a priesthood to bring them safely, a priesthood that they could trust to bring them into fellowship with the holy God. And we today need the same. Uh, And so as we consider That, from the chapters 8 to 10 and 12 of Leviticus, we'll consider three questions, okay? Uh, We'll ask the question of what is a priest? Secondly, what qualifies a priest? And thirdly, what does a priest even do? Yeah. What is a priest, what qualifies them, and what they do? So let's start with what a priest is. Um, And please forgive me for the religious lingo, but I want to suggest a definition for what a priest is. Right? A, a priest is a consecrated mediator who stands between us and a greater reality. A consecrated mediator who stands between us and a greater reality. 
Let's break it down. So a conse- being consecrated simply means that you are set apart. You're holy for a particular purpose. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties working toward a shared outcome. And as you read this, you might think that it's got little to do with our modern world. But actually, our culture has more priests than you might think. I think our culture's greatest reality is the self. Society tells us that the goal of our existence is self-actualization, becoming our fullest and truest selves. In a sense, you could say our culture worships the self, and in our pursuit of that greater reality, we need the help of specialized priests to bridge the gap between our current selves and our ideal, actualized, best selves. So Philip uh, Reef in The Triumph of the Therapeutic talks about how our culture sees therapists now a bit like a new priesthood who can lift us out from the depths and elevate us into new modes of being. We'll take um, some thoughts from Frank Bruni, a New York Times columnist. He once wrote a piece observing how personal trainers in New York City had become like the priesthood of beauty, helping you to become your best, most aesthetic self. And of course, scientists are the priesthood of rationalism. Tim Ferriss, um, I'm sure you know him, the four-hour everything guy, right? He, he and others like him are the priests of productivity and Marie Kondo. Of course, Marie Kondo is the, pri- the high priest of personal organization, making every aspect of our lives spark joy. All of these priests, they help us to mediate between where we are and our ideal selves, that greater reality that we want to pursue. The only problem with all this is that the Bible's claim runs in stark contrast with our culture's claim. The Bible's claim is that the highest good, the highest authority, the greatest reality is the God of the universe. Actually, Genesis 3 tells us that self-worship is the root of all sin. The greatest reality is the God of all creation, the God of goodness, perfection, and holiness. And if what the Bible says is true, then it should be fair and right and just that all of creation, all of our lives, points to this holy God. And if He really is perfect and holy, then we ought to approach His presence with a sense of respect and awe and fear, because He, friends, is far from safe. And the awe of God, the fear of God, isn't like that feeling of insecurity that you might feel when you speak to a really attractive person or when you're in the presence of someone who's just far more skilled and knowledgeable than you are. Those feelings aren't always grounded in truth. They can change. They can shift. But God's attributes are unchanging. He is eternally perfect, eternally holy. The writer of uh, Proverbs puts it this way, right? In chapter 9, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's what's he saying there? He's saying that the rightful awe and fear of God, an accurate image and picture of who he is, is the basis around which you ought to orient your entire life. He is holy, deserving of your awe and your fear and your reverence. 
So come with me to Leviticus at 9, and we'll look at 22 to 24. So this happens after Aaron and his sons have all been purified by the sin offerings, and Pete read that for us, after they had offered right worship to God through the burnt offerings, and after they had entered into fellowship with God through the fellowship offering, also called the ordination offering in chapter 8. And notice that it is only then that they could begin mediating for the people, taking them on the same journey of having their sins purified, of offering right worship to God and then coming into fellowship with Him. And it's only at this point when the priests and Moses and Aaron and all of God's people were made pure and right in His sight that Moses and Aaron could then enter into the tent of meeting, the place of meeting with God. And what's beautiful about this moment is that God had made a way for Himself to be Israel's God, to dwell with them and for them to dwell with Him in their midst. And as this happens, as God's presence descends, it consumes the offerings with an all-consuming fire. And the moment this happens, the moment the presence of God comes and consumes them, all of his people fall down and shout for joy at the same time. They shout for joy because their God has come to be with them and they fall in reverent worship because he is a holy God. And maybe some of you might have had an experience like that, where God's presence has come with such power that you can't help but fall down in worship. But the reality is, is that most of our lives is not like that, right? Our problem isn't that we're too afraid to approach God or too fearful of His presence. I think our problem is that actually we don't realize just how holy and dangerous and just this God is. Because if we did, we wouldn't realize Uh, Sorry, if we did, we would realize that we couldn't just waltz into his presence without help. Let's look at chapter 10. This is 1 to 3. So immediately after this happens, immediately after God's presence descends and consumes uh, the offerings with an all-consuming fire, Aaron's two sons decide, hey, we're going to break protocol and we're going to give an offering of our own to God. And as we read, uh, there are some pretty devastating consequences, right? Let me read. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of the people, I will be honored. This is a confronting scene. One commentator on Leviticus put it this way, sin only seems trivial to us when God's holiness seems trite. Sin only seems trivial to us when God's holiness seems trite. And we treat God's holiness with a sense of triteness when we minimize our sins, saying, oh, never mind, God is a God of love, right? He'll forgive me anyway. And we also treat God's holiness with contempt when we say, oh, God must accept me into his presence because of what I have done or what I can do. 
I'm sure you would have heard it before in the readings, time and time again, it gets reiterated, everything is as the Lord commanded. A dozen times that phrase gets used, as the Lord commanded. And whatever we might make of um, Nadab and Abihu's strange offerings of fire, at least this much is obvious to us, right? They broke protocol. They did not do as the Lord commanded. Everything had to be done as the Lord commanded. Why? Was God's intent to make it as difficult as possible for his people to come into his presence? No. God had to be so particular precisely because he wanted to make a way to be with his people. He is holy. His presence is dangerous. And unless everything is done perfectly, any man, woman, or child with an ounce of sin upon them coming into contact with God will be completely consumed. And that's why Israel needed a priesthood. That's why they needed priests who were committed to being consistent, fulfilling their roles and their duties perfectly so that they could mediate between a holy God and an imperfect people. And friends, that's why we need a better priesthood, because even our best efforts eventually fail. We inevitably fall short because we're human. You ever run late for work because you somehow managed to turn off your alarm in your sleep? Ever burn something in the oven because you got distracted? Ever go to a meeting or get to a friend's place having forgotten the one thing you were supposed to bring? And these things are small. They're not a big deal, I know. But there are far more significant ways that we constantly fall short. And when entering into the presence of a God so dangerous, so holy, we can't afford to slip up. And that's why we need a consecrated priest trustworthy enough, good enough to mediate between us and a holy God. And so this should lead us to ask, right? What qualifies a priest? What makes them good enough to fulfill this office? Well, from the text, we see that there are two overarching expectations of the priests. We see that they need to be religiously pure, chapters 8 and 9, and they needed to be morally pure, chapters 10 and 21. Now, religious purity simply meant that the priests should be able to do for themselves what they would also do for the people. Um, And we would expect the same of our secular priesthood too, right? You wouldn't trust um, an overweight personal trainer to prepare you for a marathon. That'd be ridiculous. So the priests must have consistency and integrity about them. They have to be able to do for themselves the thing that they will do for others. Again, notice in chapter 8 and 9, everything had to be done exactly as God had commanded. And only then could Moses and Aaron and the priests enter into God's presence. And so the priests, what they had to do was offer up sacrifices daily for their own sin, daily offering up burnt sacrifices for worship. And they routinely offered up fellowship offerings for that relationship with God. And they had to do all of these things for themselves before then going on to do it for God's people. But Israel's priests, they didn't have to be only religiously pure. They also had to be morally pure. And culturally, again, we expect the same of those who minister to us, right? People of position can't only be good at what they do. They've also got to be moral people as well. 
And so that's why we'd cancel a fantasy author for their views on gender or boycott a celebrity talk show host because they're a bully or demand that an elected official resign because of a consensual extramarital affair. Priesthood must be morally pure. Leviticus 21.8 tells us why. God says, consider the priests holy because I, the Lord, am holy, I who make you holy. There's a lot of holiness going on there in one sentence. They had to be holy because God is holy. Religiously pure, morally pure. And so to maintain their moral purity, in chapter 21 we see that the priests had to avoid all sexual immorality. Later on in chapter one, uh, 21 verse 9, we see that they had to deal with sin within their own family with the utmost seriousness. Chapter 10 tells us that they can't even drink and minister before the Lord because they might slip up and die. They couldn't be given over to drunkenness as a part of their lifestyle. Elsewhere in Numbers 18, we're told that they had to be above reproach when managing their finances. They had to make financial decisions that were just and fair. And in Numbers 30, we see that the priesthood had to always keep their word. They had to be morally pure. And there were two reasons why the priests had to be religiously and morally pure, right? Uh, first reason is, if they weren't and walked into the presence of God, they would die. And secondly, if they were religiously and morally impure, then that would disqualify them from ministering before God on behalf of his people. And so the, the priesthood had to be religiously and morally pure. And so we've looked at the first two questions, uh, what is a priest? and what qualifies them. Let's look at this last question of what a priest does. In short, they exist to mediate between God and his people, right? And so when the priests were able to fulfill their calling, God's people were purified from sin, they offered right worship to God, and then they enjoyed fellowship with the God of the universe. But the issue with all of this was that Israel's priests were limited. Not only were they themselves sinful people, not only did they have to deal with their own sin before they could help purify others from theirs, but simply by the fact that they were human, they were limited, right? They had to sleep, they had to rest, they had to eat. They all eventually died. They could never intercede and mediate on behalf of God's people indefinitely. And by the time of Jesus, the priesthood was so corrupted, their lust for power and influence caused them to compromise their religious and moral purity. They accepted bribes. They excused perpetrators of injustice, and they themselves perpetrated injustice. And so for any of God's people to put all of their trust in human priests would mean that they would be let down with devastating consequences they would be left without a true mediator between them and the infinite and holy God. And I want to say this, family, that if we put our ultimate trust in a priest or a pastor to make sure that we are right with God, then we are in serious trouble. The truth is, I'm sinful. I'm finite. I'm just as limited as you are. And so is every other priest and pastor. 
But just as Israel's tabernacle pointed to a greater reality, Israel's priesthood was just a shadow. It was a foretaste of the true and better priest who would cleanse God's people from sin once for all, the priest who would enable God's people to offer up their lives as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God, a priest who would bring all of God's people into fellowship with him forever. The writer of Hebrews dedicates almost a third of the epistle to talking about Jesus being the great high priest. He, the Son of God, was appointed to be our great high priest. He was born in human flesh to become one of us. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. See, because of Jesus' humanity, he has compassion for us. He knows the trials and temptations that faces every single one of us. And where we fail, he did not. Because of his perfect obedience, he's qualified to stand in our place before God. And because Jesus was both perfectly pure and moral in his humanity, as well as the eternal Son of God, his atoning sacrifice at the cross is the final sacrifice once for all. He is able to cleanse forever all who trust in him. And now, since he was resurrected to eternal life and ascended into heaven's throne room, he lives forever as our great high priest. Let's read again from Hebrews 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Family, Jesus lives forever to intercede for us. What does a priest do? A priest mediates between a holy God and us. And if we are seeking to enter into fellowship with God by any means but Jesus, then we're kidding ourselves. We're playing with fire and we will be consumed by it. But if we trust in Jesus alone as the eternal and great high priest, then we can truly come into genuine, real fellowship with God each and every day. And it's like when the presence of God came to dwell at the tabernacle, Jesus' ministry as the great high priest ought to do two things in us. First, it should cause us to fall on our faces in humble, awe-filled worship. The presence of the infinite and holy God consumes everything and everyone sinful. God's holiness cannot abide sin. It took the perfect, eternal Son of God to fulfill this priestly ministry on our behalf. Without Him, you and I would be utterly and completely destroyed. We should fall down in awe-filled worship of Him. But secondly, Jesus' priestly ministry should cause us to shout with joy. The eternal God of the universe has not despised us. He's not given up on us. He's made a way for him to eternally be our God and for us to be his people. We've got no business relating to a God like him. 
And yet through Jesus, he's made a way. And this should fill us with joy, unlike anything else in this world. And so when we enter into God's presence, or when we sense his presence with us as his people, it's not ultimately because we've done all the right things in the right order. It's not because we've become moral enough or religious enough. When we enter into God's presence, when we sense his presence in our midst, it's because of what he's done for us in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we can enter into the presence of God without fear, without hesitation, in awe and reverence and worship for him. And friends, we must trust in Jesus alone as the great high priest. He is the only way we are safely ushered into God's presence and can enter into whole-bodied and whole-hearted fellowship with him. Apart from Jesus as our great high priest, we are without hope. But because of him, we have a high priest who meets our every need. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that you are a holy God and that we are a sinful people. And our sin ought to disqualify us from being in your presence. And yet because of your mercy, you've made a way for us to be your people in Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is there now interceding on our behalf. Thank you that we belong to him and he to us. I thank you now that we can have a sense of your presence in our midst because of what you have done for us in him. Our hope and our trust is in Jesus alone. And we offer you worship and thanks and praise in his name. Amen.